And now, it's time for the biggest bonanza in podcasting. With Dominic Stern and Nicholas Hodell, this is the College Basketball Bonanza! Dominic Stern, I'm Nicholas Hodell. You're listening to College Basketball Bonanza. No, we are not connected by Xfinity x Fi. <laughs> um... It's been a, a very crazy week uh, in college basketball, obviously with the first and second rounds of the NCAA tournament. One of the craziest first two rounds of an NCAA tournament I've ever seen with upsets left and right. They were everywhere. Uh, we got, what, four double-digit seeds in the Sweet 16 this year, The one of the highest uh, average seeds in the Sweet 16 that we've ever had. My goodness, Dom, I mean, it's been a crazy weekend. Crazy. Yeah, it was awesome. Sunday was fantastic. And then Monday was a bit of a disappointment. Obviously, there's the early morning upset. And then after that, the games weren't very competitive. Um, it, oh, well. But, yeah, it, it was thrilling. I had a ton of fun this weekend watching college basketball. And, man, it was good to have this back after we didn't get it last year. It really was, and it almost seemed like the very first day of the tournament made up for not not having 2020 because the first day was chaos, and then it just kind of went, went into uh, the rest of the first two rounds, which leads us into the Sweet 16, which is crazy. Uh, before we preview the Sweet 16, though, with all the upsets uh, that t- took place, uh, we're going to try to try to give you the art of the upset 2021 edition. And I was looking at Oral Roberts and what happened in their games uh, first just to see really uh, where things transpired. And it was interesting because in both of those games against Ohio State and against Florida, Oral Roberts was heavily out-rebounded. But where they won those games was they limited turnovers. They did an incredible job of doing that. It was a plus eight margin in the second round, a plus 10 margin in the first round. To me, that did it for them. Yeah, Obadar and Adam and Abus Abmus did a great job of holding on to the ball. They also made a lot of threes. They were able to, you know, limit their opponent's possessions. And that, that's what it came down to. And they did a fantastic job. It was really fun because I mean, the way that I had my brackets was Ohio State was losing the sweet 16. So I was pulling for Oral Roberts this entire game. And it felt like you were in the arena, you know, pulling for the underdog. They were able to pull it off. Really bad shooting performance from Ohio State from deep. That's something that they didn't do a lot in the regular season. But Oral Roberts, they, they just hounded them on defense, and they were able to get the job done. It was a really fun game to watch. It, it really was. And, and both the Ohio State game and the Florida game uh, were fantastic watches. Uh, Oral Roberts now becomes the second uh, number 15 seed to advance into the second weekend uh, with Florida Gulf Coast. Uh, being the first and this Oral Roberts team it's very fast as you you mentioned the star guard with the terrific numbers that he was able to put up 29 points in the first round against Ohio State and then in the second round against Florida he back back that up with 26 and and also it's um, uh, Obenor as well he put up 28 in the second round and and, and, and followed the 28 um, after a 30-point game in round number one. Those two, to me, they could take on Arkansas very well. I think that this Oral Roberts team is a team that you do, don't, do not underestimate them. 
Because if Arkansas does that, I don't know. I mean, poor Roberts do it again. Yeah, and they opened up as 12-point underdogs in a text to my friends. Probably not a bad idea to take them at the plus 12. I went 4-1 and one against the spread this weekend with my with my locks. I don't gamble, but I, I, I do give my friends some bets. I had Oral Roberts against Florida. They came through there. I, I agree. I think it's going to be a very close game. Arkansas hasn't really shot too well from deep, and they've started games off slowly. Remember the huge deficit against Colgate? And then they were trailing by 9 to Texas Tech early in the first half before going on a 13-4 run. And then they ended up willing just an absolutely thrilling game. But yeah, I hundred percent agree with you. I think they could definitely keep it to single digits. Now, uh, no, no seed 12 or higher has ever won in the sweet 16. So I, I won't, I won't count on it, but they can keep it close. Yeah, they, they absolutely can. I almost expect it. Uh, the way that Oral Roberts team has played in this NCAA tournament, the Midwest region was pure chaos, absolute chaos. We got a two seed and then an eight 11 and 12. Uh, that in itself is absolute chaos. We mentioned the turnover battle was part of the or the upset for Oral Roberts. What was it for Loyola Chicago and Oregon State and, and Syracuse that propelled them to the Sweet 16 in particular? Well, Loyola Chicago really just hounded uh, Kofi Coburn, and they had a really tough draw. I mean, getting the ACC and the Big Ten champion uh, in your first two rounds is really tough, but they handled it with grace and was really fun to watch them come out. Cameron Crutwig is just so fantastic, and they're, they're just such a well-coached team. I find it really hard to believe that Porter Moser won't be getting a, a job offer after after this year. But against Georgia Tech, very close game. Loyola Chicago really pulled away in the final 10 minutes. It was really close, but they were able to get it done. Like I mentioned, Crutwig, uh, this game he only had 10 points. Williamson, a guy who only averaged seven points per game on the year, ended up getting 21 points against a very stout Georgia Tech defense. So that was really impressive. And then against Illinois, they just frustrated them on offense. And a team that's not exactly the best offense, 35th in offensive efficiency, according to Kempom for Loyola Chicago, they're able to score 71 points against a really good Illinois team. And you just had to wonder, like, the, the, the game plan for defending the pick and rolls against Crutwig from Illinois was terrible. And he's kept going back to it and, you know, uh, don't, don't fix a working clock. And that's exactly what Loyola Chicago did. They kept their foot on the gas pedal. You know, there are a couple of times where Illinois got it back to eight points, seven points, nine points, but it never was really close. And Loyola Chicago, they looked like the team that was ranked ninth in Ken Palm. That's yeah. what they really looked like. Yeah. Not, not an eight seed in the NCAA tournament. Yeah, uh, I, I think they're going to make the final four at this point. Uh, that Loyola Chicago team. I mean, Oregon I State will be tough, but I think they should be able to get past them. And then it'll be interesting between whether you get the two seed and two seeds. I think Loyola Chicago can absolutely defeat or the zone of Syracuse, which gave San Diego State so many fits and even West Virginia to a point as well. I really think that Loyola Chicago, they're going to do it again. I think what they've been able to do is just so special. But we mentioned Syracuse. I mentioned briefly the zone. You want to talk about that a little bit and what? they did against San Diego State. Yeah, I mean, Buddy Beheim had the game of his life. This was such an incredible shooting performance, and it didn't matter whether he was wide open coming off the coming off the screens that San Diego State wasn't able to get around and really really put up some uh, some valid defense, which is their strength. They weren't able to do it, and then even when you know they were they were isolating Beheim, he wasn't getting good looks, but they were still going down. It was incredible. 
I couldn't believe what I was watching. It was such an impressive shooting performance from an offense that isn't the greatest shooting team. You know, they shot 35% from three on the season. That's, that's not bad, but they come out and they shoot 55% from three against a very good defensive team in San Diego state. It was incredible. Seven of 10 from Bayheim in this game. He was fantastic. He was basically the entire offense Gerard with 12 Dolajai with 11. That was it from them. It was a really big bummer watching San Diego State Aztecs team that over the past two seasons had only lost six times and they have zero tournament wins to show for it. But that's, of course, what happens. The zone frustrated the Aztecs. You can tell they weren't exactly as confident with their shooting, but they shot 48% from two, which is, is solid. That's a little bit lower than their mark on the season. But at the same time, they, they just didn't go back to the twos. They kept chucking up threes and they just weren't comfortable against the zone. Really good three point shooting team on the year. And they went 11 of 40 from three in the most important game of the season team that shot 36.8% from three. That was 45th in the nation. Uh, it was really just a bummer, but you got to give all credit to Syracuse, that zone that doesn't always work as well in the ACC tournament because, or in the ACC, because the coaches have seen it, it always produces in the NCAA tournament and double seeded Syracuse has done really well as of late. And uh, th this was the first wound in my bracket for sure. Yeah. Double digit seeded Syracuse is inevitable. It's ev every time. I mean, it's unbelievable how consistently they do it as a double digit seed. They just sneak their way into the tournament and then bam, they're off and running to the races. It is unbelievable. But what about Oregon state? Uh, I, I thought they had uh, really, I thought one of the um, weaker draws that they could have gotten against the Tennessee weaker as, as in a team they probably um, shouldn't have beaten. And then they beat them, which Tennessee, you know, I had really picked them up to their potential and they clearly did not play to their potential at all against Oregon state. And then they did it also against Oklahoma state. I mean, it's, it's, it's incredible what this Oregon state team is doing projected last in the Pac-12 preseason media poll. They're now in the Sweet 16. Unbelievable. Yeah, and I mean, they were down by a large margin against UCLA. At one point, I'm looking at it, they're down 32 to 16, 34 to 19, and then they went on a 12 to 2 run, really got back in it against UCLA, and then ended up winning that game in overtime. That was a thrilling game. And then ever since then, Oregon State They've just been dominant. They come out, they beat Oregon, who of course is also in the Sweet 16 by 11. And they beat Colorado, team that lost to Florida State, but looked really good against Georgetown. They killed them. And they come out, they beat a pretty solid Tennessee team. And they beat an Oklahoma State team by 10 that had really been just beating just about everyone they'd faced with the exception of Texas. And they, they, were, they just looked so good defensively. And they've just been making shots. They shot 35% from three on the year and then you come into these games and they shoot six of 20 against Oklahoma state from three. That was really good performance from them. And then against Tennessee, they come out and they shoot 10 of 21 from three against them there. So the recipe for success, play some stifling defense and then make some threes and they're going to win some ball games and they're playing really great basketball at the right time. Coach Tinkle's got his guys going well. Ethan Thompson, he's getting himself drafted, that's for sure. Yeah, you can always make the case that he is making that case for himself in this particular NCAA tournament. But the Pac-12 as a whole has a quarter of the teams in the Sweet 16 
I mean, how in the world uh, did this even happen? Because I'm, I'm sitting here just like stunned that the Pac-12, as underseated as it was now in many people's eyes, has now four teams in the Sweet 16. Unbelievable to me. I, I, I mean, it really is. Like, I would have never expected this. Right. And I mean, I only predicted one of these teams successfully to go to Sweet 16. So I'm not going to say like I called it because that would just be completely wrong. That was USC. Um, but I mean, we all knew Oregon was better than a seven seed and we knew that they'd been playing extremely well basketball. And then who knows if they would have beat VCU, which I, I hope we're going to talk about that in a little bit because that was, of course, really unfortunate for VCU. And then, you know, they they got torched by Evan Mobley and USC the one time they faced them. So I said, you know, I don't think they really match up well against Luca Garza. I was right about that part, but uh, just about everyone else just dominated for Oregon. That starting five just absolutely killed them. That was super impressive. And then we knew about the potential of Colorado. You know, they lost to Florida State. Uh, they had a really tough draw playing Georgetown, who, of course, was red hot. And then Florida State. And then UCLA, I picked them to win the Pac-12 in the regular season. They lose Chris Smith. They lose four straight games to really hurt their seeding. But then they get hot in the second half against Michigan State, winning it overtime. And then they get a favorable draw against BYU, who comes from a weaker conference. They end up beating them there. And then they, of course, get help from Abilene Christian, who beat Texas. And UCLA had the makeup to beat Abilene Christian. Don't turn the ball over. Run a really slow pace. And they just dominated them. And then we already talked about Oregon State. But USC, they, they're not going to shoot this well against Oregon, just because that's just not how basketball works. But they shot the ball so well in the first half against Drake and really just throughout the game, but I, they're, they're playing so fantastic right now, and they're, they're going to be a big problem if they end up facing Gonzaga. I mean, either Oregon or USC is going to be a big problem against Gonzaga because I really don't think Creighton stands a chance, and they got, frankly, lucky that they walked out away with UCSB, which that hurt my bracket, man. Oh, that UCSB Sweet 16 would have been awesome for me. And then the missed offensive rebound or the missed defensive rebound. Then you foul Christian Bishop, who's like a 60% free throw shooter. Then you makes both them and you go down the other end of the floor and you miss the point blank layup to take the lead with three seconds left. It's just like, oh, UCSB did everything right all game. And the last 10 seconds for them just went just about as poorly as you could want it. And that's all it takes for the underdog to not pull off the upset. So yeah, that, that'll be interesting. Yeah, and I'll say something about the Pac-12, of course, Colorado. McKinley Wright put the Buffaloes in a very bad spot with early foul trouble. Uh, as soon as he got his fourth, as early as he did, I'm like, yep, that's it. That's your game right there. Because you you got to protect McKinley Wright. That's your star player right there. And when he gets into foul trouble, that team was in trouble. And it very much was that case. And, of course, the community of, of Boulder, Colorado, very much uh, – undergoing a very tough time after the, what happened in, yeah. in Boulder, Colorado. So certainly wish them the very best. Um, very tough time over there right now. But the rest of the Pac-12, very much thriving. And we get an Oregon-USC Sweet 16 game. That is going to be very, very exciting. Uh, I did hear that the that there was a report of the fact Larry Scott would be in Indianapolis, which I'm telling you right now, that is a bad sign right That's now. not going to go home. That's, That's not going to go well. That's a sign waiting to happen. I mean, if I'm the Pac-12 Pac assistant commissioner, I'm telling them to get the heck out of there because here's the thing. I don't think Larry Scott realizes this, 
But I think that all this good footage of the Pac-12 right now is happening because he announced that he is gone. <laughs> oh, 100%. Like, if you, if you believe in any karma as a human being, that is exactly what is happening in the Pac-12 right now. And I saw someone saying on Twitter that uh, what's happening in the Big Ten is karma for just totally mishandling their, their football season. And I said, well, then why is the Pac-12 got four teams in the Sweet 16 when they had five teams in the field? So I, I debunked that right away. Uh, it's all because Larry Scott is, is leaving uh, in, over summer. And, yeah, I didn't realize that that he was going to be there. So thank you for pointing that out. So yeah, that, that I, is I, going to I will be... use that to my, to my advantage. Yeah. And, and really, if you think about the logic of it too, uh, just for, for UCLA and, and Oregon state, I think that Alabama should be UCLA, Leo Chicago should beat Oregon state. So, so really as far as expectations go, I, I can't really expect a whole lot from the PAC 12 to begin with Larry's got an Indy or no Larry's got an Indy. So we'll just get that. Uh, completely out of the way, but you mentioned the Big Twi- the Big Ten, and even the Big Twelve will throw in here as well. We we have both said that they were the two best conferences in the country. I think most people would say that they were the two best conferences in the country going into the tournament, and they both disappointed. What happened to both of these conferences, particularly the Big Ten? Because I mean, I think that if this was if there was any year for the Big Ten to finally get their national championship, this would have been the year. And quite frankly, I can't see it now. Yeah, I mean, I had Illinois winning the championship, and they, they of course, I think were the favorites to, of course, do that as they were the second most popular championship pick, according to ESPN, only behind, of course, the Gonzaga Bulldogs. And, I mean, they, they, they frankly got a really bad matchup in the second round. I don't think there's any way around that. Now, of course, that's just how the tournament works. But then you look at the rest of the other teams, you know, Wisconsin, you can't really fault them. They, they went out and they won as an underdog and they won handily against a very solid North Carolina team. You look at Rutgers. I mean, if Rutgers just holds on against Houston, then I think there's a little bit of a different reputation around this because then they have two teams and that of course helps if Michigan state holds on against UCLA, all of a sudden they're the team facing BYU. They're facing Abilene Christian. So, I mean, you, you really look at these little things and you could really point both ways but Ohio State losing a game that they really shouldn't have lost. Uh, I, I really thought Purdue was like the biggest lock as a four seed to win the first round matchup because I really like this Purdue team and I didn't think North Texas was all that. And of course they turn around and they lose. So uh, what do I know? And this is March, but yeah. that, that of course didn't help. And then Iowa got smashed by Oregon. So there, there were a couple of things. I mean, if you look at Michigan State, if they hold on, and if you look at Rutgers, if they hold on. And then you really value what Wisconsin did against a team in North Carolina. And then they, they, they hung around with Baylor. They, they did all they could. Their, their style of play does not fit to beat Baylor by any stretch of the imagination. But it's odd because a lot of these teams that were in the tournament, they run at a very slow pace. And those are teams that, you know, they, they typically end up doing well in the tournament. And that just wasn't the case for them this year. And it sucks for the Big Ten because I still think they're the best conference this year. I don't, I'm not going to have a couple of games out of conference swap that. But, I mean, some people were talking about how the, the gauntlet of the Midwest, as we say here on this podcast, really beat them up going, into the con- going into the NCAA tournament, and that's why they lost. I don't buy into that because, I mean, I feel like all these teams 
have done so, especially when you look at some of these teams that underwent COVID pauses and they hadn't played as many games. And you look at the Pac-12, a conference that mostly stayed out of that. And now all of a sudden they're, they have four of their five teams in the Sweet 16. So I, I, I don't know to answer the question. And I wouldn't be too concerned if I'm the Big Ten. I think they just got unlucky in some instances. Yeah, and, and some of those games, and you mentioned the Illinois-Chicago draw. Uh, first off, brutal for Illinois. Second off, you look at, at that, not just this game, but at this entire tournament. And, and then you go to November, uh, assume we have a, a normal calendar season, assuming that's the case, hoping that's the case, but you never know with the way that, you know, you know, either the vaccine gets slowed or anti-faxes completely stall progress, and we could have another troublesome year next year even. And, and I'm assuming we'll see um, not the, the quality mid-majors not get their opportunities. And then you wonder, why aren't these quality mid-majors getting the opportunities? Look at this NCAA tournament. These power conference teams, they're scared of losing. They're scared of losing the regular season. They're, they're scared of it. Uh, and I, I'm com- I've completely convinced myself over the last few years, when you look at, at the quality mid-majors, I don't get those opportunities. They're just scared. I mean, look what happened with Illinois, Ohio way back at the start of this season. Like, those these power conference teams don't want that. They don't want that at the start of their year. They want tune-up games. I mean, they, they want, like, the worst teams in the SWAC. They want the bottom-tier teams in the Southland. They want those teams so they prepare for their 20-game gauntlet in the Big Ten. That's what they want. They don't want the Illinois-Chicago 1-8 matchup. And that's why the system's kind of screwed for a team like the Lewis Chicago. They can't get the opportunities in non-conference, particularly here like this one, there are limited non-conference opportunities because the power conference teams just won't play them because they're scared of taking a loss. It sucks, but it's how it is, unfortunately. That's one of the big things that if power conference teams had the audacity to do it, they should. But unfortunately, they don't, which is a true shame. So, so, so to speak of the Sweet 16 and, and where the, the bracket lies, uh, region by region, we'll start in the West of Gonzaga, Creighton, USC, Oregon. I think there is no excuse for Gonzaga to not go into the Final Four having won both the Sweet 16 game against Creighton and the Elite Eight game against either USC or Oregon by double digits. I don't think there's an excuse for them. I mean, the, I mean the, the path has been paid for them for an easy ride to the Final Four. Yeah, it, it really has been. And we talked about it on the show when we watched the bracket get unveiled. And it felt like they had the easiest path along with Baylor. And it's certainly proven that way. Now, of course, they've been very fortunate that the two and the three seeds have fallen. And the four seed, of course, had some COVID issues. They weren't able to practice until Friday, the day before the game. And they got knocked off by the 13th seed. And really, the five seeds, the five seeds should have been knocked off as well, too. Like I mentioned, with UCSB beating Creighton, that game still haunts me. But yeah, I, I mean, double digits, I think, is an unfair standard to put to them. That's what they're going to be favored as. So if they don't do that, I won't be shocked, but they should 100% make it to the Final Four, and I'd be shocked if that doesn't happen. I will say, I don't, I, I don't think it's unfair just because of how far above Gonzaga seems to be above everyone else, which is another interesting point to make because the Kempom system, with, with the limited non-conference games that they had in the system, this system got a the rankings got a complete overhaul over the oh, yeah. course of the last few days. And what we see now is not Gonzaga, Baylor, and everyone else, but rather Gonzaga, 
and literally everybody else. There is right. now less than a point between Baylor and Illinois from second to fifth. And we hadn't seen that throughout the course of the season. So if anything, I think it's absolutely fair to hold the double-digit points as the standard for Gonzaga because just you look at that right there. To me, there is no reason why Gonzaga shouldn't be going through Creighton, number 19, at a plus 21.91 when Gonzaga is about 18 points higher uh, in the adjusted efficiency margin. No reason that shouldn't be double digits. USC, who, by the way, is now number six in Kempom nationally, mm-hmm. which is very intriguing, and Oregon number 17, still it's a double-digit gap. So, yeah, I, I think it's a fair standard. Um, and, 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 of course, it is March, so you never know what could happen, but I think the double-digit is, is the fair standard to put on this Gonzaga team going into the Final Four. Let's move on to the East region. Michigan, Florida State, the 1-4. UCLA, Alabama, the 11-2. I still like Alabama. I pecked them all the way through. Michigan, Florida State, I think that was going to be one of the more interesting games in this Sweet 16. Yeah, I agree with the Michigan-Florida State point. Uh, I had UConn coming out of this region, and then, of course, fell flat on my face in game one against Maryland. So, I mean, I think Alabama and UCLA should also be a very fascinating game. Uh, Kempom has both these games as two possession games or less. So, I think they should both be really good games. I think UCLA could really control the game. Like I said, they don't turn the ball over and then run a really slow tempo. And I feel like that could be a recipe for success. Make Alabama play to your play style. And if you don't turn the ball over, if you make your shots and you don't let Alabama run in transition, that really creates them to put them in a situation where they can't run that offense of chuck up threes, uh, get to the basket. And that's just about it because they don't shoot mid-range shots because they know that analytically those are the worst kind of shots. So I think UCLA could actually be a really good upset pick here. I'm not going to predict it, but I think that they could make it very close, especially the way Ju Zhang and Jules Bernard have been playing to go along with Tiger Campbell and uh, other players on that team. So I think that could be a very good game. Both these games should be fantastic in the East, and all four of these teams could come out of this region. In the South, Baylor versus Villanova in Arkansas against Oral Roberts. I would love to see that Baylor-Arkansas Elite Eight matchup. I think that is going to be very interesting. And with the way the Big 12 performed, with the, now Baylor being the last hope for the Big 12, I mean, I mean, who really knows? I mean, I think mo- most people had Baylor going to the Final Four in the first place. I still think that's going to happen. But I think Villanova and potentially Arkansas is going to give them a really good run for their money. Yeah, it's not going to be easy for sure. And the way the Villanova played – this week was very impressive considering that they didn't have Colin Gillespie and kind of shows the coaching of Jay Wright. He's one of the elite coaches in all college basketball. A lot of people would consider him to be the best coach in college basketball at this point. And I'm not going to argue against that because I'd be a fool, but Baylor, they've been one of the most talented teams all year. They really chuck up threes and they play good defense. Their defense was much more impressive against Wisconsin than it had been in previous weeks. It, it dropped from a top 10 defense all the way into the top 40. And now it's back inside the top 40 at 37. So it got a little bit better. Uh, they did a really good job against Wisconsin. I obviously like them against Villanova. It should be a relatively good game. And Arkansas Oral Roberts, we already talked about that. And I really think that we're going to see Baylor-Arkansas, which has been my elite eight matchup. And it should be a very fascinating game. And then the region of doom, the Midwest, Laosha Chicago against Oregon State. 
Syracuse against Houston. I absolutely think Syracuse zone can beat Houston if Houston does not prepare properly. Uh, and they're going to have to prepare properly, especially given the way Syracuse played against San Diego State and then against West Virginia. I think we could be seeing a little Chicago-Syracuse match on our hands. I think what little Chicago has right now is special. And I think that little Chicago is going to get back to a Final Four. I mean, you got to do it for Sister Jean. If Sister Jean is putting analytics in her prayers, you're in trouble. I, and Illinois learned that the hard way. If Sister Jean continues to put analytics in her prayers, oh, man, watch out the rest of the tournament, honestly. Watch out the rest of the tournament because anyone could be in trouble with Sister Jean spitting out numbers and statistics in her prayers. I mean, holy cow. Yeah, I, I do have Loyola Chicago versus Syracuse in my second chance bracket meeting up in the Elite Eight. And I think that would be a very fascinating matchup, but I know that Cam Crutwig would absolutely eat that zone alive. And that would be a really fun thing to see is uh, Porter Moser and his coaching going up against that zone. That'd be fascinating. Houston's a very interesting team because they looked really good in that second half against Cleveland State, and they looked horrible against Rutgers. And they really got away with a lucky win given the fact that Houston just frankly choked it. They didn't run any offense the last three minutes of the game. And some of their possessions were terrible. Defense, they kind of lost focus there at the end. And Syracuse, uh, I think, could take advantage of that because I really don't think Houston, frankly, deserves to be in the Sweet 16 right now. They don't. You're absolutely right. And you got to wonder how much the next few days are going to be a very big learning experience for that team. I know how much that coaching staff's really going to hone in on the focus uh, that that team had against Rutgers. You really got to wonder how much that team's going to be prepared because I think they'll be much more prepared and much more focused. I think they're going to learn their lesson, but that Syracuse zone can eat anyone alive in non-conference play. And I think we're definitely going to learn uh, just how much that Syracuse zone, just how inevitable double-digit seeded Syracuse can be. So we'll move on from the NCAA tournament talk. Now we're going to talk about the craziest thing outside of your traffic jam and rush hour. It's called the transfer portal. And my goodness... Has this thing just evolved into pure madness over the course of the last week, and especially over the last day? Uh, we'll talk about some of the more recent activity uh, later on, but first, the two biggest names I think that entered the portal earlier on uh, from the time we had our last episode to now, Marcus Carr, Fats Russell from Minnesota and Rhode Island, respectively. These are two huge names that I fully expect we're going to have a ton of teams wanting these particular guys and their services. I think both of these guys are going to have powered conference programs wanting to have them on their teams. I think both of these guys can be impact at the power conference level. Well, I mean, Marcus Carr already was an impact player at the power conference level. So that goes without saying. And then, yeah, especially when you consider what Fats Russell has done, over the past couple of years at URI, he was basically their entire team this year, which was really unfortunate for him because they're, they were a talented team the past couple of years. They had a really tough schedule this year and they just really weren't able to get over it. And he's going to make a program really happy when they end up getting him because super talented player can get to the lane and score can do just about everything. He's such a fun player to watch. And like I said, he's going to make some coach, some, AD really happy when he ends up committing to go play there. Yeah, I think whatever happens to both of those uh, guys, where they end up, that team's going to get elevated to that next level automatically. Uh, those two, I mean, Marcus Carr has been impacting the Big Ten 
the shit in that Minnesota team. Literally could not win a game on the road. And then Fats Russell, he is bound to take that next step in the power conference basketball. You are absolutely a dead on on that. I would expect that the, I don't want to say bidding war necessarily, since we are still talking about student athletes here. Uh, but in this free agent-esque transfer portal, I obviously think we're going to have a very interesting race for those two guys and their services. We talked about DJ, DJ, DJ Harvey on the last episode of transferring from Vanderbilt. He's going to Detroit Mercy. I think that, I mean, Detroit Mercy, I mean, what Antoine Davis did for that team this year was remarkable uh, in, in, the, in the Horizon League tournament. Didn't quite have the regular season I think they were probably envisioning, but Davis really was one of those guys that the first night of bracket season popped off. And, I mean, it was, it was spectacular to watch. DJ Harvey taking that step down from Vanderbilt to Detroit Mercy. Who knows what, what he really could bring to the table going to the Horizon League. I think that could be a very interesting case. Yeah, and Detroit already finished in third place in the Horizon League this past year. Antoine Davis was a junior this past year, so he still is eligible. We'll see if he ends up staying at Detroit, enters the draft, enters the transfer portal himself. Uh, we'll see how that ends up going. I mean, when you look at Detroit, they only lost three games in the final two months of the season. So uh, if if they can keep Davis and they can keep or and then pair him with Harvey, I think you're really talking about a team that can certainly be favored to win the High Horizon League next year. Yeah, and there's a few other names to keep in mind as well. Chico Carter Jr. entering the portal from Murray State. He started the last nine games of this particular season. He has one offer from a long. I don't think anything else has come along yet for him, but that'll be interesting to keep a track on. Looks like he'll be staying within that mid-range, mid-major range basketball. CJ Felder to the portal from Boston College. So again, another one that from a not so great ACC team. Be interesting to see where he ends up. And then, oh, really just the last 24 hours uh, at the time of recording for, for both of us have been insanity uh, in the transfer portal. Indiana's Amon Franklin is in the portal. He had 11 plus points per game this, this season. Uh, Sabian Flag from TNM is in the portal. Uh, six foot seven senior had about 8.8 points per game this season. Uh, Ty Fagan from Georgia, guard, had 9.2 points per game, is in the portal. Three guys right there that had pretty solid seasons at power conference play. Uh, and a Vermont Franklin, that is an exploratory move. He may go to their school, he, he could stay in Indiana. Uh, I haven't heard quite frankly the uh, uh, the wording of flag or Fagan, but the three of these guys deciding uh, to at least enter their name to the portal, I think is very interesting, especially in Franklin's case, and Indiana still got a coaching search going on right now. Right, yeah, I was about to mention that. He could be exploring because he's saying, you know, hey, IU, if you want to keep my talents around here, go get yourself a good head coach. And then, of course, maybe I'll consider staying. If not, I will go and pursue opportunities elsewhere. So he's really giving himself options. I like that move for him. And yeah, like you mentioned, flag that that's uh, it's certainly interesting. And then Fagan, uh, two better players from SEC teams that weren't very good this year, and those guys could be looking to go drop down a level uh, to mid-major conferences, high mid-majors, or just be going to other Power Five conferences, Power Six conferences, just to get a change of scenery. Yeah, and, and really for a lot of players, a change of scenery could be exactly the thing they need. But really for, for Flag and Fagan, they had already been producing as well as they had. It does make things 
a bit more interesting. And for Franklin, I mean, I think the message kind of has been sent that, hey, if you want to keep me, go get a good head coach. And I said last week that I think their hedging, their coaching search could end up being like the Bears quarterback search where they aspire for the home run and they, they have to settle for a few notches below that. I would not be shocked if Franklin did go to their school, quite frankly. Uh, I, I would not be shocked right there. Uh, we'll talk a lot more about Indiana and what could happen with that, particularly with, with uh, Peter Moser in a little bit. Um, another chance I want to hark on, American transfer, uh, Jameer Harris is going to Satan Hall. First team all Patriot League, 20 and a half points a game. He is someone I believe could have an instant impact in the Big East Conference. Yeah, that's a great pickup for Seen Hall. And they've been a team that's gone out and gotten some players in the transfer portal as of late. And, you know, especially when they've lost a couple of players over the past couple of years that have been really good players for them. They need to do that. And especially considering they missed a tournament this year. Bryce Aiken was a guy they got in the transfer portal this past year. And I think you could really see Harris bring on a similar role like he did. Yeah, I really think that he's going to be one of those transfers that we're talking about at the start of next season as being one of the more important transfers to watch out for. I think what he does is going to be extremely interesting. Uh, for St. John, senior uh, Josh Robert is expected to enter the portal. Not entered yet, but he's expected uh, to enter the portal. Uh, was supposed to be a big part of the core for that team this year, but just did not perform as expected. This season had about six points a per game, I believe, in, in the nineteen twenty season. So, so Roberts is certainly one of those guys that, again, he could be just looking for a change of scenery. Yeah, in St. John's, they, they had a bit of a weird season, and you could definitely see some guys that didn't have roles that they liked moving on, and he certainly applies for that. So let's move on to the coaching carousel. Uh, a few moves over this past week. We talked about the TJ Oxelberger move to Iowa State last week. That was been made official in this past week. Now it's third tenure at Iowa State as first as the head coach. He last left the program in 2016. The last three teams that Oxelberger Oselberger led for Iowa State on that coaching staff, uh, they were a NCAA tournament team. So this should just be a case of Iowa State wanting to go back to what worked. And if that's the case, that's a brilliant move. Uh, you know, going back to someone who brought you success, left a little bit, you suffered, bring him back, try to get more success off that way. I mean, someone that kind of understands the Iowa State program, I think that's honestly not a bad idea. No, it's not a bad idea. And when you consider that uh, a lot of that was because they had more talent at Iowa State and more talent like collectively and not like leaving to go to the draft and whatnot. I think that you could really consider that did Otzelberger have a big part to do with that? And if he did, I think this is a great move because he would know local areas where to get talent, how to keep the talent. And maybe he can work with some of the guys that they might have recruited that are now older players at Iowa State. Yeah, and, and also, I mean, if he knows the area, knows the culture of the program, he knows the pitches to make to make to recruits. He knows the pitches, and you know, if you're, I mean, that it's brilliant to bring in someone that knows what he's talking about. I mean, it may take him a little bit to get to really refamiliarize himself, you know, get the memory flowing again. But I think that you know, sticking with what had worked in someone like Otzelberger, I think that could work wonders for Iowa State, especially the end where they were just awful in, in, the, in a very competitive. Big 12 conference that could be key for Iowa State to getting back to the competitive echelons of the conference. So then the question became, well, what was UNLV going to do? Insert a promotion for assistant Kevin Kruger to head coach staying in house. 
uh, and for, we talked a lot about UNLV uh, last week on the program. Staying in-house, what do you think about that? I think it's cool because he also played at UNLV and his father coached there, Long Kruger, now the coach at Oklahoma. So I think this is cool, and this also might be an attempt to keep some of the players they have there because, like I mentioned, UNLV, very talented team that just hasn't done as much lately. Bryce Hamilton is a stud. And then I really like Cheke and Baki Diong, uh, really uh, just an old old man's big man, uh, fights on the board, uh, good in the post. And he doesn't get the ball a ton on offense, but he certainly brings in valuable minutes. And they have the pieces. They just haven't been able to put it together the last couple of years. I mean, in 2020, they were okay. They finished in the middle of the pack in the Mountain West, but a program like UNLV needs to be a little bit better than middle of the pack because 12 and six for them is like, should be the bare minimum for UNLV. And that just has not been the case lately. Yeah. And you certainly got to really wonder um, just, I mean, how competitive they could be in, 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 in that Mountain West. Uh, for Minnesota, uh, Ben Johnson is the hire. Uh, for the Minnesota Golden Gophers, uh, someone that really is a Minnesota alum. He had served as, as an assistant coach uh, for the Golden Gophers, someone that, that again, knows the program, um, helped lead Xavier to pretty good recruiting classes over the last couple of years. Someone that, I mean, if you look, if you look at it from just those intangibles, good hire. Yeah, and... It, this, by all accounts, is a good hire. I was mostly just thankful that they didn't hire head coach Brian Dutcher, who also played at the University of Minnesota. His father coached there. And there was a clause in his contract that the buyout for Minnesota was only a million dollars, where other schools it was more expensive. So that would have been another good hire. But I agree. Johnson's a good hire for, for Minnesota. And we'll see how Xavier tries to replace him. Yeah, and speaking of... Uh, assistants getting the call up. Uh, George Mason uh, gave the call to former Tennessee assistant Kim English uh, to be the next head coach at George Mason University. Uh, and, and again, English, what he did as an assistant for that Tennessee program, very, very good stuff, was very good on the recruiting trail uh, with guys like Keon Johnson and Jaden Springer. I, I think that this is, again, someone that deserves to get that head coach opportunity. And for Kim English, I think a place like George Mason could be a nice spot for him. Yeah, because George Mason hasn't been where it normally had been in the past. They've always been a middle-of-the-pack A-10 team, but, you know, they, they've had those fabled NCAA tournament runs. And I think that a hire like this could certainly help out like that. You mentioned the recruiting. This could also help out defensively as Tennessee has been a really strong defensive team as of late and we'll see because I think George Mason should be a little bit better program than where they are at right now. Uh, so let's move on to Albany. Albany is a program that has not had to hire a new head coach in 20 years. This is uncharted territory and recent history for Albany. So their hire is Dwayne Killings and he is already starting to be to begin the progress of building his staff. Vermont assistant Hamlin Tibbs is one of those uh, seven years for, for uh, at Vermont as an assistant coach. And what, he, what Vermont did under his tenure was absolutely brilliant. And then they're also going for Roman Catholic head coach Matt Clifford from the high school scene. Uh, he was the athletic director there in, in the 
head basketball coach and certainly um, did some decent stuff there. So I think what Killings is doing is very interesting here. Obviously for Albany, again, like I mentioned, they have not had to do this uh, coach hiring process in 20 years. So it's certainly something that Albany is not familiar with in recent history. Uh, but first off, is Dwayne Killings hire? And then what he's doing with his staff? What, what, what are your initial thoughts on that? I like it. And like you mentioned, uh, they've been a team that has had their head coach there for a long time. Will Brown has been there for 20 years. And this is, this is a new thing. And he did great things with this Albany program. He got them to the NCAA tournament, and they were consistently at the top of the American East Conference standings five or so years ago. And they just haven't been at that spot. So it's time to move on. And I, I like bringing in guys that are familiar with the program. And I think that Albany could certainly be a team that we see once again towards the top of the AM East Conference. Yeah, and it certainly seems that, I mean, for Albany's basketball program, at least being in that top half is sort of the expectations. And having a losing record in each of the last three years is definitely not qualifying as what that program really aspires to do. So you are absolutely right in, in that Albany, I mean, it, it was time for a change uh, for, for the expectations of that program. And I really think that I, I think they have it right uh, in the hire uh, that they have chosen to go after. Uh, another pretty big hire uh, that we have seen uh, for, from uh, the West Coast uh, as of late Portland is going to hire Eastern Washington head coach Shantley Leggins as the head coach of, the, of Portland. Uh, spent 12 years at Eastern Washington, and Leggins had led each question to five of its seven all-time postseason appearances, and he spent four years as the head coach um, of the Eagles. Uh, and then in those four years, uh, he is really compiled the best overall and conference winning percentages uh, in school history. So certainly someone at age 39 knows what he is doing. And of course, he'll need some time at Portland. Uh, and it will not be easy in the West Coast Conference. Not when you got Gonzaga to contend with. Not when you got BYU to contend with. But surely this is a step in the right direction for Portland. Yeah, Portland's been really bad, and what Eastern Washington's done over the past couple of years, and of course, getting to the NCAA tournament this year, and frankly, looking really good against a very stout Kansas team, had the lead for a large part of that game, and really fought with them the entire way. I think that this is a very solid hire if you're Portland, because they've been bad for a lot of years now, and you know if they can just find a way to get up to the middle of the West Coast Conference, then I think things will be looking better for a team like Portland. Cause I don't feel like recruiting should be that hard. You know, come say, Hey, let's go play in one of the coolest cities in America. Have you ever been to Portland, Nick? I have not. No. Very fascinating city. And I, I enjoyed my time there. And if you get a, if you get an athlete there, you know, not, not like a three-star recruit and he's got some talent and you like him as a player. I feel like that if they can get this program trending in the right direction, they could start to get some recruits, start to get some transfers coming in because Portland's a nice city. Yeah, and it's certainly going to be a long, a, a long-term process uh, there at Portland. But certainly, what you mentioned about Portland, I mean, it sounds good to me. So we'll just uh, uh, take that <laughs> point and accept that from you, uh, Drake. An eight-year contract extension for Darian DeVries. Uh, I think what he has done this year, that Drake Bulldogs team, and it's just a turnaround of that program uh, to the heights that Drake was at this year, getting an at-large. 
uh, in the NCAA tournament. Top class uh, move from, from Dre to get that contract extension. Eight years is interesting to me, but it seems like we're trending more towards those longer term extensions for head coaches. Right, and especially at mid-major programs that are turning themselves around. If you want to keep the head coach, this is the only way to get it done because they can say all they want. Uh, blowing smoke, as I referred to it on the last episode, they can say all they want, but when when the big schools come around and offer them the multi-million dollar contracts, it's tough to keep them there. And of course, DeVries, what he's done the past three years at Drake, uh, taking over a program that Nico Medvedev left when he went to Colorado State, it's been in a much better spot. And what Drake did this year was fantastic. And that game against Wichita State was incredible. And the really fun run where they ended up starting off the season 18-0, it was incredible. And I think that this is a well-deserved extension for DeVries. And we'll see if Drake is going to be able to keep a lot of their talent around. Because Yesifu, super talented sophomore. Uh, Hempful, he was a senior. So we'll see if he, uh, if he pursues opportunities elsewhere, uses that last year of eligibility to his advantage. But really talented team, and we'll see where they go from here. And then one of the bigger moves on Friday, uh, Marquette firing its head coach, Wojo. I'm not even going to pronounce I'm not even going to try to get that full last name down, but he is gone uh, after seven years. Uh, and and Mar- Marquette did under his tenure at times was really, fun, was really good, but I mean, this year just was not it for that program. I think the change had to come. And it really leads us to really the last question of this program of, of Peter Moser of Loyola Chicago. I cannot imagine that schools are not going to go after Moser. I think Marquette should absolutely be looking in that direction. Indiana should absolutely uh, be looking in that direction. Mentioned DePaul last week. I think DePaul should absolutely be looking in this direction. Where do you think the ideal landing spot of the scene right now is for Peter Moser should he leave Loyola Chicago? Uh, I mean, I think Marquette's a good option for him. Um, I think IU is obviously the best option considering the the track record of that school and they can offer him a lot more money than Marquette can. That's for sure. And then, I mean, who knows what we'll see from older coaches. I mean, if Coach K wants to retire, if Coach Williams wants to retire, if any of those guys want to retire, those are also good options for him. Like I said, I think Marquette's a good option for Moser too. But I mean, a I program think, like Marquette, who? I think Moser is due for a big-time job. And what Peter Moser has done as of late Indiana needs to send the full boat to Moser as soon as the North Chicago is out of the NCAA tournament. Just send him the full boat of stuff and, and, and offers. Just do it. Uh, this, this is your home run hire right here if you're Indiana. And, and I mentioned earlier that I think that they will not get that home run hire. But for Peter Moser, for, for Indiana, if you are not going after Peter Moser, or at least not even thinking about it, Porter Moser, I'm, my bad. I, I wrote Peter on my sheet. That That is my bad completely. Uh-huh. <laughs> um, but I almost lost my train of thought there. But if you are not going to go after Porter Moser, if you're not going to give the thylet, yeah, no. I mean, someone's got to take a toy hammer, beat that to someone's head, and just be like, what are you thinking, you idiot? Because this is your home run hire right here. This 100%. Is, I don't think you can – do not blow it. Um, yeah. 
complaint that I have of every single person in the Indiana basketball fan base. This is your home run hire. Don't blow it. Right. And there were reports last night from fan sided that said that they were trying to get Thad Matta and they had a duel in place. And then when he went and had a physical, uh, it, uh, it fell through. So, and then of course, Goodman and some of the other bigger insiders quickly shot that down, said it wasn't true. So I don't know how much weight to put into that because I mean, fan sided has become a, you know, somewhat reputable source and especially given the people who are closer to the programs at Indiana that write for fan sided, but then you also see the bigger insiders saying that's not true. And I've also seen some rumors that they could be looking to make a Jawan type, a Jawan Howard type hire that Michigan made, uh, bringing in a former IU basketball player that is a big promise. I don't know who exactly that could be, which that would lead me to think that they might lean towards Nevada coach Steve Alford, which I personally don't think that would be a very good hire, especially considering his lack of lack, lack of success at UCLA. But I, th- that's where I stand. I agree with you. They should 100% go after Moser because, like I said, it's really hard to turn down those really big schools when they offer you a ton of money. And I don't care what he says. Um, it's going to be hard to turn that down. And if IU doesn't go after them, like you mentioned, take a hammer to their heads, Nick. I mean, how about Michael Lewis and what he's been able to do as an assistant coach um, for, for multiple programs now? I think that someone like him, uh, the Indiana pedigree, uh, I'm, I mean, not saying I'm biased here. So he's from Jasper, Indiana, but certainly I think that someone like Michael Lewis, if you're going to go for that former IU player route, I mean, I mean, it's a huge jump from assistant coach to head coach of the Indiana Hoosiers. But certainly I think someone like him, if you're going to go down that route with someone that has the pedigree of the program, I think that he is also a very interesting option given what he's done as an assistant at multiple schools. I think that he could certainly be a very intriguing option uh, for Indiana to really pursue as well. Yeah, I hadn't thought about that. But, I mean, like, Jawan Howard hadn't coached at all. He was an assistant coach for the Miami Heat when they brought him in. And immediately that's looking like a really good hire. He wasn't as great of a head coach in 2020. You know, Michigan was certainly trending towards being a middle-of-the-pack team in the Big Ten and certainly being like a six or seven seed but this year when the team was a little bit more talented, a little more veteran present, and then, of course, brought in a really solid player in Hunter Dickinson, that, of course, had turned things around. And then, of course, the recruiting class that Michigan's bringing in in 2021 for 2022 is going to be uh, a force to be reckoned with at Michigan. And if you're Indiana and you're saying, how do we combat that, you can make a similar hire. Yeah, and really, whatever Indiana does, it's good to get – you know, all kinds of scrutiny um, from, the, from, from everyone, certainly the two of us, whatever Indiana decides to do, it's going to get all kinds of scrutiny and either praise or criticism, depending on what we all think about it. But that is going to be one of the bigger things. And it's interesting, too, because I did see a tweet that this is around the time of the, of the calendar, at least, that Indiana announced each of their three previous hires. Uh, we can go back to Crean, uh, to Miller, I think IU should try to take a little more time. Obviously, don't take as much time to where guys like Porter Moser are going elsewhere, but you got to do your due diligence. I mean, Tom Green was great for like, what, two years and never got IU far as far as IU should have gone in those years? And then Arch Mill was just, 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 just bad. 
So, I mean, I think if you're IU, and I, I'm not sure what you think as well, but I think you got to take more time than what you have previously. Make sure you get it right. Yeah, I mean, like you mentioned, they have to get this hire right. And, yeah, I, if you want Moser, if you want Moser and he's your guy, then, you know, you got to wait until Loyola Chicago gets out of the tournament because you, of course, don't want to disrespect what they're doing. But at the same time, if you want Moser and you're willing to put all bets off to get him and like we said in the last podcast, Mark Cuban said that he would pay for the contract. Uh, uh, there's no reason that you, if Indiana comes to his door and he says, okay, I'm interested, that he's not going elsewhere. He's not going to pick somewhere over Indiana unless if NBA teams have been talking to him, which I don't think is going to happen. No, I don't think Moses at that level yet. Um, he could work his way to that level, though, without a place like Indiana. I mean, if that's where he's thinking long-term career rise – Indiana, again, is a great landing spot for him. Because if he does win Indiana, he's going to get the NBA calls, I feel like. He's going to get that opportunity. So that's, that, to me, is probably the marquee um, guy to follow this coaching carousel. What ends up happening with Porter Moser, I think, is going to determine an awful lot about where the landscape uh, is going for several programs. Marquette, I'm sure, will be after him. Indiana, I hope that God is going to be after him. We'll see what DePaul ends up doing, but I it would make sense, you know, for Moser. I mean, if he wants to stay in the Chicago area, have another new challenge in front of him, I think DePaul could be the place uh, to get that happening. So, so many different avenues that that really, that I'm not going to call it like a huge, like top prize bonanza or anything like that. But that could certainly be one of the top gets for anyone in this entire coaching carousel. Well, that is going to do it for this edition of the College of Basketball Bonanza. Thank you so much for sticking with us there as we drop the latest transfer portal, coaching carousel news in the past week on you. For Dominic Jurd, I'm Nicholas Hodel. Have a fantastic week of college basketball. Of course, very different with a Saturday, Sunday, Monday, Tuesday schedule. Uh, but we'll certainly get out of another episode midweek this next week get you prime to the final four and get more transfer news, coaching carousel news on you then. Have a very good week, and we'll see you right back on your favorite podcast platform then.